If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 26. As we turn to God's Word this morning, let's also turn to Him in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, despite what we may look out what we may look like on the outside, we are all needy people. We are all this morning in great need. We need you to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And so, Father, would you be pleased now to provide what we need? Indeed, Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we need illumination and strength. And indeed, we have companionship with you to walk, to make it home. So, Father, be pleased to open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're getting very close to the end of this summer's installment. I believe next week, Psalm 27, will be the end. And we'll pick it back up, Lord willing, uh, next year, next summer. Well, these 150 songs, poems, uh, have been used in the private and public worship of God from the beginning. God's people Israel, God's people the church. All 150, as you've seen in this short summer series, they're, they're diverse. Uh, going from one to the other, you see sometimes almost big changes. But, but even though they're diverse, they're all centered upon the one true and living God, and they express, they help us express what is often mysterious, and that is the divine human encounter. I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to read the Psalms fast. They are poetry, and as poetry, they cause us to stop and slow down and, and think and meditate and, and rehearse. And we, we, as we slow down, as we read by faith, God's Word informs our intellect, arouses our emotions, stimulates our imaginations, and directs our will. Indeed, we are not just gathering information through our study of God's Word, through spending time in God's Word, we are transformed as God's Word feeds us. And kids, you know what happens? You eat and you get bigger. You eat and you get stronger. Same way for a Christian. We feed upon God's Word and we grow. It is very nutrition for our souls. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that the Psalms are a little Bible, a miniature Bible, that you can see all of the Bible brought to bear the themes of the Bible there in the Psalms. John Calvin, as we've been hearing, said that in the, the Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Well, I want to bring this next quote from someone uh, who actually lives in our area, who I uh, accidentally ran into at a restaurant in Crestview Hills, Kentucky, a few years ago, and saw him downtown at the Cincinnati Shakespeare Theater a few months later. 
He's, uh, his name is Walter Brueggemann, uh, the well-known Old Testament scholar and theologian, at least well-known among people that intensely study the Old Testament. He says this about the Psalms. In Psalms, we find poems of orientation, poems of disorientation, and poems of new orientation. These correspond to the realities of human life. Human life consists in satisfied seasons of well-being that evoke gratitude for the constancy of blessing. Human life also consists in anguished seasons of hurt, alienation, suffering, and death. These evoke rage, resentment, self-pity, and hatred. Finally, human life consists in turns of surprise when we are overwhelmed with the new gifts of God when joy breaks through the despair. I think we will see that as we go further in the Psalms, and I think we'll even see that today in Psalm 26 as we are oriented, disoriented, and reoriented. Psalm 26, I believe, is best seen as a psalm of petition and a psalm of confidence. And I'm also creating a new category today. A psalm of examination and inspection. A psalm of an examination and inspection. God's Word, as you know, acts as both a window and a mirror. As a window... What we will, we will see God and His ways, and that will orient us and, if necessary, reorient us. But it's also a mirror. And what we see in the mirror may indeed disorient us for a time until God's Word, as it were, acts like a window through which we see God, His ways the gospel. Now when you hear the question, where do you stand? What first comes to mind? Maybe what comes to mind is Martin Luther, who said at the Diet of Worms in Germany in 1521, here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. When he was told to recant of his views, here I stand. Or maybe your first thought is uh, the idea of, well, what's your position when it comes to X, as we would ask a political candidate? Where do you stand with this issue or that issue? Now, even before we read our text, I want us to go to the last verse of Psalm 26. The last verse, verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. Now, I'm using the word stand to serve as a framework and an outline for our examination and inspection of the psalm, which will, of course, by design, examine and inspect us. You know, I'm reminded um, of something that we shared in a Bible study a few years ago, and it's a helpful reminder. Um, oftentimes, we come to the Bible from above. We're reading into the Bible what we want out of the Bible, right? And we talked about that last week. Well, the proper attitude, of course, is the humble attitude, approaching God's Word, not so that we can get what we want, but so that we will receive what is there and what we 
what we need. And so as we, as it were, examine and inspect God's Word, what is God's living and active Word going to do for us? It's going to examine and inspect us. And I think that this psalm, just like many of the psalms we've already seen, will result in some warning lights showing up on the dashboard of our lives. Warning lights are a great thing. They are not a curse. They are a blessing. God's Word, to be sure, encourages us. God's Word also convicts us. God's Word warns us. Both encouragement and warning are aspects of God's gracious provision for His people, for us. So let's read Psalm 26, all 12 verses. Of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Well, we're going to unpack and explore Psalm 26 by asking one question of three relationships that can be seen in our text. These three relationships are distinct, but they are inseparable. We're not going to be able to, nor should we, attempt to compartmentalize them. They are all interrelated. But for our purposes, we're going to attempt to go through them one at a time. And so here's the question for all of us, for me. For you, for all of us, where do you stand in relationship to yourself? Where do you stand in relationship to yourself? Um, From our text, we see that it is one, according to David, what he's written here, his relationship to himself is one of honesty. It's not one of pride, boastfulness, or arrogance, but interestingly, It's one of humility. Now, if you read this psalm fast and one time, you may come across with this idea, who does he think he is? A number of people I've talked to about this psalm, when they see this, they are like, are you kidding me? David is arrogant and boastful. No. David is honest. This is not about bragging rights or boasting. He's just being honest about himself, about God. Humility 
is been turned upside down by our society, by our culture. My friends, humility is not being unsure. You know, being humble is not holding all of your positions really loosely so that the wind can blow it one way or another. No, humility here is being honest. This may look outwardly like boasting or bragging. David, in being honest about what we will see, his integrity, he's demonstrating humility. Because his relationship to God here, as we see in our text, is one of integrity. Now, integrity is not the same thing as innocence or blamelessness. It's the state of being whole and undivided. I think we may get our word integer out of that. A a whole and undivided state. David is not a hypocrite. He's honest about his sin. Now, you may be saying, oh yeah, David, the adulterer, the liar, the murderer. Have you ever thought about when Nathan confronted David, told the story of the man and the sheep and David engaged with that story and then the classic line comes out in the King James Version, thou art the man. What was David's response? Continue to harden his heart? No, David confessed his sin. He, he repented. He fell before the Lord. David It may have taken some time, but he was honest about his sin. Look with me at the bookends of this psalm. In verse 1, he says, For I have walked in my integrity. He is saying, that's my past life. And look at toward the end in verse 11. I shall walk in my integrity. That's my future commitment. I have walked and I will walk in integrity. David is possessing a clear conscience. His conscience is clear. You see that in verses 1 and 11 and 12. It reminds us of Paul in Acts chapter 24 when he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. It's one of honesty. It's one of integrity, and it's also one of confidence. David is a confident man. Look at the, look how it ends. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He is assured. He is confident. After all of this, David says of himself that he is standing on level ground. And he will bless the Lord in the great assembly. So before we move on to this next relationship, let's just all ask ourselves, where do you stand in relationship to yourself? Now, I'm not trying to cause us all to be even more self-focused and self-absorbed than we already are. And by no means do I want us to strengthen that inward curve where we navel gaze or are unhealthily introspective. But just ask yourself, where do you stand in relationship to yourself? Can you see yourself as someone who is honest, who is undivided, 
It's someone who is confident. Are you right now standing on level ground in relationship to yourself? It's an important question to ask. Now Psalm 26 asks us not only to consider where we stand in relationship to ourselves, but also to consider where we stand in relationship to others. And we see that in particular in verses 4 and 5. Now, Psalm 26 doesn't say everything about what is to be our relationship with others, but it does say something. So we're going to ask and look at what does it say about our relationship with others. Now, a bit of background. It's an echo here from Psalm 1. Uh, those of you that were with us in 2000, I don't know, 14 or 15 maybe, may have heard a sermon, a tale of two worshipers. A tale of two worshipers. And here was the outline of Psalm 1. The company you keep, the fruit you produce, and the judgment you face. There were two worshipers, and there are two worshipers described in Psalm 1, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous and the wicked. And we need to keep that in mind as we move forward. So, let's look at David's relationship toward the wicked. Look at verse 4a. I do not sit with men of falsehood. It's not a passive, like I'm walking through life and I have to talk to and, and meet and greet people who are evil and wicked. In fact, all of us, to one degree or another, qualify. But David is saying when he says, I do not sit, I, I, I'm not a comrade of the wicked. I have not, um, I've not uh, entered into a friendship with those who distort the truth, those who intentionally take what is true and distort it. I do not find companionship with those kind of people. Nor do I consort with hypocrites, I want to not and stay away from people who are insincere, who, who outwardly are one thing and yet inwardly are another. I, I do not want to consort, and I think our psalm that we sang said dissemblers. Well, what on earth is a dissembler? It's an old word to talk about someone who is two-faced, a, a hypocrite without uh, a double mask, as it were. And he goes on, I hate the assembly of evildoers. I hate the assembly of evildoers. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that David is, is avoiding a wicked people. He would have to live alone and isolated. It means that there's a deliberate gathering together of those who are opposed to God and his ways. And we see that in Elijah's interaction with Ahab in 1 Kings 18. He goes on, I will not sit with the wicked in verse 5. Again, a restatement for emphasis. And then if you look down to verses 9 and 10, you, you hear these words, sinners, bloodthirsty men, men who hold evil devices and whose right hand are full of bribes. David is like, I do not join their company. That's directly stated. But, but what's indirectly stated, what's implied is his attitude toward the righteous. 
David, by saying, I don't sit with the wicked, is saying, I do sit with men of truth. I do consort with men of integrity. I love the assembly of those who do good. I will sit with the righteous. It's interesting as you, as you read the Bible to ask questions of the text and to say, well, what is it saying? What is it not saying? What is it saying? What is it not saying? And to see sometimes what is left out that could be directly implied. If this is his attitude toward the unrighteous, what is his attitude toward the righteous? So, let me ask us all this question. Where do you stand in your relationship with others? Do you move toward and want to join in with people who love falsehood? Our society in 2018, isn't it interesting? Uh, truth has always been under attack, right? But it seems increasingly under attack now. But you know what? Everybody really, at the end of the day, wants to live according to truth, right? They want their own money to stay in their bank account, right? They don't want it stolen. They, they, at the end of the day, people really want to live according to truth because that's how life works. And yet, the deceitfulness of our hearts, the influence of the enemies of God have twisted and corrupted. So even we at times love falsehood. Love wickedness. So where do you sit? Where do you stand in your relationship with others? Are you standing on level ground? Now Psalm 26 asks us to consider our relationship to ourselves and to others as we see David in his relationship with himself and with others. But the center of gravity of this psalm has to do with the question of the relationship to God, to the Lord. It says, where do you stand in relationship to the Lord? And you see that in particular in verses 6 through 12. Now I want to work backward in these first few verses. I want to work backward and begin with verse 3. Verse 3, for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Notice he looks to the Lord. He looks to the Lord. He looks toward the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, last week, in the ABCs of God's guidance, what was the A? Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord in His steadfast love and faithfulness. So far in Psalms 1 through 26, in eight Psalms, almost a whole third of the Psalms, we read of the steadfast love of the Lord. David in looking to the Lord is remembering Exodus 34:16, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Because David entrusts himself to this Lord, because of that he asks to be tested. He asked to be texted. We see it in verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. He asked to be tested and go up to verse 1. He asked to be vindicated or judged. Vindicate me, O Lord. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test me. David calls on a witness, not just with outward 
behavior toward the wicked. David is asking for a witness, the Lord who knows his heart, who knows the inside. He appeals to the Lord. God is a character witness of David's life. So he looks to the Lord. He asks to be tested. And we see in that, that his relationship with the Lord is one of obedience and trust. And again, back to verse 1. For I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I have walked, I have lived, I have been obedient, and I have trusted. I have believed. I mean, you can almost see the rhythm of uh, trust and obey. Sounds like a hymn that we could have sung. Trust and obey. Here's David trusting and obeying. And if you look at David's life, it's one of repentance and faith. You know, David has said his integrity is such that God should test him. But notice that David is not really confident of himself because look at verse 11. Right after he says, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, that commitment. He says this, redeem me and be gracious to me. David is appealing to God's character. God, you are gracious. Be gracious. He's also appealing to God's competence. God, redeem me. He appeals to God's goodness and his greatness, to his kindness and to his power. Um, Kids, growing up, I had a family prayer that went like this. God is good and God is great. Let us thank him for our food, right? God is good and God is great. Have you ever thought about it? Have you thought about the theology present in saying God is good and God is great? It's here. Redeem me and be gracious to me. God is great. He is powerful. He can rescue me. And what has Psalms said so far? God has rescued David over and over and over again. But God is, be gracious to me. Don't treat me as my sins deserve. Be gracious to me. And in his relationship to the Lord, notice it's not just private between him and God. It is also, and especially here, it is public. He delights to worship God publicly. And go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. We see that in 6 through 8. And at verse 12 again, He's in the great assembly. And what will he do there? I will bless the Lord. He delights to worship God publicly. He delights to be in the great assembly. So, let me ask us all this. Are we delighting in being in God's house, His habitation, where He has promised to be? I think one of the neglected... uh, benefits of being as part of the gathered church is you know life out there in the unbelieving world is tough it is difficult we we have to at times uh 
demonstrate that we are not of the world. And that cost us. So where better to be strengthened, to stand, strengthened to fight, strengthened to walk and live, if not in the public assembly of God's people. And David is worshiping, he's delighting in the public assembly. It's not just his relationship with God, but he's going to tell all the wondrous works of God. He is going to bless the Lord in the assembly. Is that you? I mean, are you embarrassed to sing loud, to pray loud, to, to, to go low in conviction and to go high in comfort? If not here, where? I'm so glad the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. I'm so glad to be here to be refocused and re-equipped and renewed, renewed for the rest of the week. What a blessing it is to publicly worship God. So let me ask us this, where do you stand in your relationship with God? Are you on level ground? Or is it a matter of ground that feels slipping away beneath your feet. Another hymn comes to mind, of course, on Christ the solid rock. I stand. Well, Psalm 26, a psalm of petition and confidence, serves to place a mirror before our eyes and it calls us to ask questions. As we've seen in asking the question, where do we stand in three relationships? And as we've seen, these three relationships are integrated. They're not isolated. Well, we're going to finish up by going to the New Testament because we cannot stop here, of course. We have to go to the New Testament, to the completion of God's Word. And I want to begin with looking at where Psalm 26 begins. You know, we, we started where it ends. I want to end where it begins. Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me. Judge me. Some scholars think that David uh, has been falsely accused and once again is on the run. Uh, he's trying to appeal to God to, to make it clear that no, David is in the right and the others are in the wrong. We don't have enough historical evidence to say that is exactly the case. But of course, the language, vindicate me, O Lord. I want to take us, as we go to the New Testament, to one of our shorter catechism questions. Um, and, it, and it's question 38 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says this, what, or it asks this, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Meaning when Christ returns. The answer is this, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Did you hear that? Christians have benefits at death, their own death, as we know. Christians also get more benefits at the resurrection when Christ returns. And that main benefit is open acknowledgement and acquittal before a watching world. 
Psalm 26 begins with petition and it ends with confidence. It's a psalm of petition and a psalm of confidence. Now, if this is true for David, how much more should this be true for those of us who now see the one to whom David is looking forward to seeing for his ultimate vindication, the Lord's promised Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice in Psalm 26, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. The altar is gone. There is no more sacrifice needed for sin. Jesus has come. David is confident that he stands on level ground and standing in battle requires a power and an ability outside of ourselves. Remember the New Testament reading, Ephesians 6, where we are called to be strong and we are called to stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand firm. Stand therefore. We are called to stand And we find the power and the ability to stand in what Jesus provides. And so we look to Jesus for confidence to stand on level ground. If you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to read just a few verses. Verses 21, and again, Psalm 26 leans forward to Jesus. Psalm 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Do you see where David is also entrusting himself to the one who judges justly? And yet David was guilty. And yet we see Christ perfect and innocent trusting his father that justice would indeed be served. And so we look to Jesus for confidence to stand on level ground based on how he himself entrusted himself to the one who judges justly and was vindicated. But we also look to him for confidence to stand in the great assembly. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Confidence to stand in the great assembly beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You see, those who trust in Jesus are indeed brought into that great assembly. They are enrolled, as it were, in heaven. And their spirits are made perfect. And they are brought finally to Jesus, who indeed is that one mediator between God and man. My friends, if you haven't figured it out already, Psalm 26 is about being in a right standing relationship with God. It's about worship. Because worship is a demonstration of our understanding of God's greatness and of God's goodness. His power and His mercy and grace that are found supremely and completely in Jesus Christ. Because you see, as we will sing in just a moment, we really do stand on level ground as we stand in the love and in the power of Christ alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word indeed acts like a mirror so that we can see ourselves for who we are. And yet, as a window, we can see who You are, Father, and we thank You that You are gracious and merciful because in and of ourselves, none of us could stand on level ground. Oh, Father, we heard the cry that You would redeem us and be gracious to us. Father, would that be so true today? Indeed, You have redeemed us and You are gracious to us in Christ. And so, Father, would you enable us more and more to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with others and honest with you, that we would also be people of integrity, not divided, but whole, as you are pleased to stitch us more and more together, that we would speak with undivided heart. Father, be pleased to enable us to have not an arrogant confidence, but a humble confidence knowing that through your grace and mercy, we indeed stand in the love and power of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.